Hello, you're listening to Do Yourself a Favour, the podcast about learning from experience and the things we do to make our lives easier. My name's Tim Sisney from Make Work Work Better, and each episode I'll be talking to my guests about their epiphanies, their inspirations, and the magic of their workflow. And today I'm joined by Kev Moore, Big Dog, Little Dog. Very well, thank you. Very excited to have you on. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So as Tim says, I'm one half of Big Dog, Little Dog. I'm the big one. The little one is a guy called Bob Kitchen. I always feel obliged to mention that he's not little to his disadvantage. He's five foot seven, which he considers quite normal, but in my family, we've got like seven-year-olds of that height. I refer to myself as five foot 20 because it doesn't sound quite as freaky as six foot eight. But we're a two-person, two-dog uh, mental health training company. We're a social enterprise, so we're not for profit. And we spend all our time delivering mental health training from accredited things like mental health first aid and uh, suicide prevention qualification that we created through to more bespoke webinars uh, and short training sessions. And when I came on a mental health first aid training course, stop asking bloody questions if I remember right. Yeah, that that sounds that sounds about about right. But I, I think credit to to your work that it was actually the first day of the session was my birthday, and we spent the entire day talking about suicide and depression. And and I left still feeling like I was able to kind of go out for drinks and enjoy my birthday rather than wanting to crawl into a small hole. So yeah. No, it's, it, it, it's a big message we try and point uh, push out to people, Tim. We always talk about our training is aimed to achieve the three E's, which is it must be efficient, it must be energetic, and it must be enjoyable. And even a subject as, as dire as suicide, you can enjoy the learning whilst also giving gravitas to the subject. Yeah, and, and I think that was, so you very much achieved that. It sort of feel, and it felt like there was a, a sense that the you can make training about any subject if if you give the material respect and and treat the the people in the room like adults yeah absolutely yeah so the podcast is about things that we've learned over time and things that make our lives easier so i wondered if you could tell me about something you wish you'd known sooner yeah i i think my answer for this one might be a bit bit of a generational one and not as valid for for the young uns of today but looking back on life it's that changing jobs isn't necessarily a negative and it doesn't end your career to have a chain of jobs in your wake. I'm really taking that philosophy that none of us leave school really knowing what we want to thrive at. And it's okay to have a go at a number. I started 16 years old in, in Thatcher's 80s as an apprentice with oil to become an electronic engineer. And it was seen as an absolute trade, career, job for life. I did my apprenticeship. Then I did three years as a fully qualified electronic technician. Left there and joined the police. Spot the link there if you can. Did long enough in the police to realise it wasn't the job that I wanted to be in for life. And had an opportunity to get involved in security. But through security, I ended up in the pub industry. And then after my mental health issues, reinvented myself as a trainer. 
And I think it's a bit of that butterfly effect thing. If if X doesn't happen, then Y and therefore Z can't happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a big learning point for me. It's okay to change and have a go at something completely different. Just explain it well in your CV. Mm-hmm. So when you made that first change into the police, I mean, how did you feel about starting something when you did it for the something new for the first time again? How did you mm. how did you feel about that? I guess I was strategic on that one, unlike all the other career jumps. Um, in that the way it came about, I was walking down Maidstone High Street on a Friday night, and there was a, a bloke I went to school with sitting in a police car. I said, you, "You're the police now," and he said, "No, I'm a." Spe- I said, well, what's one of them? He said, a special constable. It means I do it in my spare time, unpaid. And I went away. And as a kid, I'd had three job goals, which was to be a teacher, to be a police officer, and to run a pub. And I thought, here's a way that I could have a go at policing and see whether I like it or not, whilst not jacking in a job for life, which was very (laughs) well paid as well. So I joined the specials. I was a special for about a year and a half. And then I went, right, let's have it. And I'd got enough feedback from a paid colleagues in that year and a half to think, yeah, this is a job that I can, I can be all right at. And, of course, a career like electronic engineer with Royal Mail, a career like the police, there's a really good CPD route. You're not just dumped into it and left to it. There's really high-class training mm-hmm. that enables your confidence to grow. Right. What would you say the most difficult adjustment was throughout? Throughout all of them or that yeah. transition? Throughout, throughout all of them. There were, there were breaks. So due to what was happening in my life and the way that I kind of processed it and dealt with it, there were, there were gaps where I was down on my luck. I had one where my house was repossessed. I had nowhere to live. So when they repossessed the house, we had a, we had a cellar. And I left the casement window open. So I'd go and work in a friend's pub all day long for free food. He didn't pay me. And then I would come home under the cover of darkness, reach down through the casement window, open the big window, crawl in there and sleep in the empty house. I then found out my family were buying me Christmas presents and I had absolutely no income to to buy back. I had too much pride to claim unemployment benefits at that time so I started working via an agency at a Sainsbury's warehouse driving pallet trucks around all night long for for like minimum wage so yeah I would say those episodes and there were probably three of them in my life where I guess I could have felt sorry for myself and crawled inwards but due to the people around me I got some inspiration to push on and then to start building again right that was the biggest challenge to get the to get that sort of momentum back up i guess yeah and of course the biggest one 26 years ago now when i had what we'd call a nervous breakdown got my diagnosis of severe depression and seven months of my life were written off i was Mm -hmm. sleeping 20 hours a day in the four hours that i was awake i was getting through 40 cigarettes that's one every six minutes and you develop a mindset where you lose all and, and you start looking yourself in the mirror and thinking, well, why would anyone give me a job? They've got plenty of people to pick from. Why me? And, you know, that's a dangerous place to be, that one shift in mindset. For some people, that consigns them to a life of the system and of hardship. For some people, potentially even suicide. So I'm grateful that for whatever reason within the universe, 
you know, I got that spark back and baby stepped back into work and then built things from there. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, we we like to start on, on on a high note and then take it a bit deeper as we go in. What do you think? I mean, do you know what it was that kind of like helped you get out of that and then into the training? Was there a particular was there a particular trigger? Yeah, I, I delivered some informal training before. So, for instance, when I was in the police, I saw that no one was really managing the amount of counterfeit money that was coming through the station, and no one knew really how to spot them. So I. I went up to the inspector and said, do you mind if I kind of learn more about it and then do sessions with others about it? And he was very accommodating. In the pub game, I actually did my first training qualifications, two, two different qualifications. I mean, how to teach an individual a craft and another one in group training techniques. So severely depressed, long-term unemployed. I got called into the Barnet Job Centre in North London. For my six-month job seekers review, I'd started claiming benefits at that point. And the guy went, I can see you know computers. I went, yeah. And you've delivered training. Yeah. Do you want to go on a computer training course? It pays you an extra £15.40 a week. I said, yeah, I'll have some of that. I got sent on this course. started my MBQ level two in IT. And two and a half weeks later, the, uh, the company sourced something in me. Uh, and offered me the job of an IT trainer on, on 15 grand a year. Right. And ever since then, my world has been dual between delivering training and, and working in that sector that, that moves unemployed people back into work. And that's the employability part of what it is. Yeah, saying. yeah. And, and from a mental health perspective, my brain had just gone pop. I took on so much. I was running, hot, I'm going to say a hobble pub. Who knows, some of my old punters could listen to this. So lovely people, <laughs> horrible pub, horrible things happening in the pub. I had a guy die in my arms on my doorstep on my birthday. And to go from management, everything is your responsibility, to training was just amazing for me. And I remember standing in the corridor, looking at my training room and just thinking, what happens in those four walls is on me and I can control it. Everything else that happens outside of that room is someone else's issue. So that mm. limited range of responsibilities just allowed me to grow and grow back again. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity. Thanks for that, Kev. The next question that I'd like us to, I'd like to ask you is really, was there a book or a concept that kind of grabbed you and changed your direction or that really inspired, inspired you at the time that's changed the direction of your life? So many different sources that I could name here. Book-wise, as weird as it sounds, I can remember reading a, a book by a guy called Jeff Thompson, who was a, a bouncer in Coventry, and just reading how he managed his mindset. So lots of little books like that. But in terms of the one that I would say that had a profound effect on me, people who know me wouldn't expect me to now say it was a poem, but it was. And that poem's Desi Dorata. Okay. And if anybody listening isn't aware of Desi Dorata, I'd really encourage you, just Google it. And it's a short piece of prose written by an American back in the 1920s. And it presents itself as one piece and you start reading it, go placidly amid the noise and the haste. But when really, when you look at it, you can pull it apart into probably 13 mindsets 
each dealing with a different aspect of how to look at the world. So the opening line is about peacefulness. The next line is about friendliness. And each one of them, you can read it and say, what is this telling me? And about what aspect of my mindset? Mm-hmm. So I've got it on a, a fabric eight by eight print above my works. And any time that I'm feeling troubled, I know I can look up at that text and somewhere in those few dozen words, there's a snippet that just allows me to find that bit of peace. That's, I saw you posted something this on LinkedIn or maybe Twitter that you'd 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 included it in your in your shed setup, and it, it I found it interesting mainly because my only exposure to desiderata was like my gran had it on her like kitchen wall, and like my like it was it seemed to be at a certain point in the nineteen eighties a sort of kitchen wall hall cross stitch kind of fixture, if you like. Yeah, but I don't ever remember reading it. But, but if you're not familiar with it, Tim, please do have a read of it. And I would say that and Kipling's If mm-hmm. are the two bits where you can read it and you can say, I wish I'd written that because you've just nailed the universe and everything in those few dozen words. And I, I've sent it to friends when I know they're going through hard times and they've always found consolation, solace and peace in those words. And, you know, it's, it, it mentions God once, but it says God, whoever you perceive him to be. So it's not in any way a religious text. It's just a damn fine set of, of advice on how to live your life. Thanks, Kev. So we're into the, the second part of the podcast. We, we talk a little bit about things that make our lives easier. So recommendations or, you know, I guess some people might call them hacks. And so one thing I'm interested in is what's something that you use something you use every day, something you couldn't live without, something that's kind of your workflow is dependent on? What What have you got? The thing I can't live without, I, I, I've got I've got three answers for you, Tim, and only that's one meets the criteria. Well, go 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 with all three. Give, give us that one first and then give, me the other, give us the other two. The thing I can't live without is my laptop. Mm. Where would I be without my laptop? I've even got two backup laptops upstairs <laughs> permanently synced with my laptop. But this is my baby. So please don't let anything ever happen to it. And for the kind of work we do, not only is it such a resource for things like this podcast, for delivering remote learning, but it's our research tool. It's our notepad that I'm sure other than talking to someone over the phone which by the way you can use windows for these days there's probably no aspect of our job that doesn't involve yeah and without it i'll be lost so that's that's the thing the proper thing if you were to ask those who have the fortune of 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 spending time with me on an extended basis what i can't do without they'd say humor i think because i have to make light of everything we could talk about the world's most sensitive subject, and I will often inappropriately crack a joke. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just me wanting to put a smile on people's faces. Mm-hmm. The final answer is my true answer, though. And again, it's, uh, it's not a real thing thing. And that's serenity. I, I can always find that zone, peace in myself. And I look back on... You know, I've had a heart attack. 
I've lost two of my sisters prematurely. I had that guy die in my arms. I was first on scene at a terrorist bombing, dragging the survivors out. Been through a few things in life, but I've always been blessed with that ability to just find that peace and be okay. Mm-hmm. And without that, I think if I lived my life again, it could have gone in any one of many different directions. How have you managed to find that in, in all of those trying and difficult situations? I think if I was to try and answer that question, I'd be taking the credit for it, Tim, and I'm not okay. sure that's the case. And I couldn't tell you whether it's genetic, it's a product of my upbringing, whether it's because when you go through hard stuff in life, it can make you somewhat more resistant to future hard stuff. I've always mm-hmm. had this belief that people judge how bad they've got it against the worst they've ever had it. So I look and the first of those two sisters I lost, I lost at 46 years of age. And she wasn't just a sister. She was the most amazing human being on the planet in my eyes. Her name was Jean. Uh, and I always think of her as Saint Jean, because if you if you pin me down and force me to say one thing wrong with her, I'd say, sorry, I, I can't. So I guess there's some bit of, the back of my brain that I never have to flick a switch on that just looks at life and goes, you know what, compared to so many others, this is pretty good. And in mental health services, there's often things like gratitude lists that that are Mm -hmm. suggested. And, you know, they've got a place in the right context at the right time for people. And the overriding concept with those, of course, is that we can sometimes be sucked into the negativity of our life and lose sight of what's right by it. I was delivering a webinar a few months ago. I was asked to do a webinar about my backstory, which I did. Mm -hmm. We we got to the Q&A at the end, and a bloke said to me, how do you find your peace? And the answer I gave him is, first of all, I wake up at stupid o'clock every morning. Between 5 and 5.30 every morning, I'm awake. And much as I don't want to wake at that time, I'd never change it because I've got a couple of hours when you lot are still asleep and I can get everything done. And what I do is I make a cup of coffee, I grab me vapes, and I walk out into my back garden. And I'm lucky I've got a 90-foot-long, 60-foot-wide back garden. And I sit surrounded by the most awesome sounds and sights to ground me. Even if it's pouring with rain, until I had the shed built, I'll be out there, under a parasol with holes in it, dripping down on my laptop, my precious laptop. But I always like to start the day just, I'm not saying surrounded by nature in some kind of hippie way, but I think just staying grounded and appreciating the amazing nature of existence is what, what inspires me. Not in a hippie way, to be clear. But not in a hippie way. Come yeah. on. <laughs> so what's been the most recent thing that you've... Um, acquired or bought that's kind of like been really, really useful that you've kind of felt like, I, I've got to tell people about this. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty chuffed with that. Well, you know the answer to this. You've already mentioned it once. I've already mentioned it once. And I'm sitting in it right now. So I'm in a 10 foot by 10 foot shed, which because we're called Big Dog, Little Dog, is named the Dog House. Uh, and I bought this late last year. My nephew and it, his mate built it for me in January. I moved in late Feb. I got it because when we unlock, I don't think remote learning is going away. We're going to go back to -to face-to-face learning, but 
you know, be an employer for a moment. I haven't got to book a venue. I haven't got to pay staff travel expenses. Remote learning is here to stay. At least I hope so, because I spent a lot of money on this. <laughs> so this 10 foot by 10 foot space, I've got one wall behind me right now that's a green screen. Mm-hmm. I've got one wall, Tim, you know that I've called my hero and that is still a work in progress, but there's bits up there that represent things and people who have inspired me in life. And that's been a really enjoyable exercise, trawling back through my memories and thinking who deserves to make it onto my wall. I've got my desk in here, professional mics, professional webcams, one of which is mounted to the wall. So I've got an instant meeting solution. Everything's Alexa'd up, which is fun on some courses. If it gets mentioned, some of my learners try to guess what the Alexa commands on <laughs> and they manage to turn me lights on and off during the training. But the biggest reason why I would heartily recommend, I'm not going to say a man shed, people have their own shed, is it's mine. And I think for us blokes of a generation who are in long-term relationship with all of the commitments that we gratefully take on, if we're proper gentlemen, then we, we let our other half have the creative design input for our house. And even if we've got a little corner of the house, it's, it seems to get littler and littler over time as other stuff moves into it. And I just did a quick bit of maths before we come on here. The square footage of this shed is 0.00017% of the entire Earth's surface. But that 0.00017% is mine. And the only person who decides what it looks like, what goes in here, what goes on in here is me. So I'd thoroughly recommend everyone have their own completely owned space on this planet. Nice. It's, I think, one of those things where there's a, there's kind of a line or a kind of intersection between having that convenience of being able to like leave your kit set up how you use it and, you know, not have to pack it away and so on so that you can just go in and get moving. So there's something about that, which is, imagine is very, very appealing, but also, yeah, just it being a space that is comfortable and can be the way that you want it to be. And you're not trying to sort of, I guess, coexist with another, well, you know, not just with another person, with another set of aesthetic values or, you know, maybe a, a less than stellar knowledge of the Star Wars films. Maybe maybe a different record collection, you know, all of those things that that, that are important. So yeah, that, that kind of intersection of those two things, I think, is extremely appealing. Yeah, I've got, what I did was when my nephew finished building it, I put foil, bubble wrap insulation all around the walls and ceiling. Then I put uh, OSB board over that so, to have solid walls. Mm-hmm. And I've got red, dark red fabric over the top of that. My other half hates the colour of it, but absolutely respects it. It's my doghouse. It's up to me. If I look above me, I've got that foil stuff. And then I've got twinkles coming down at me, Tim. Black fabric with little sequins in to look like the stars at night. Shall I tell you what it is? Go on. It's tutu fabric. Excellent. And if I want tutu fabric on my ceiling, it's my ceiling. 
And it is just so amazingly, you know, this, this is silly little boy stuff, but we need to keep the silly little boy inside of us because that's where so much of our joy for life comes from. Absolutely. I think I've just found the, the trailer excerpt, which is a, a six foot eight bit like the side of a house gentleman with no hair talking about tutu fabric. That's, Absolutely. That's going to go viral. Sequined tutu fabric. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. All right, we're, we're we're closing in on the the final question, Kev. So I'd like you to I'd like to answer or complete, sorry. I'd like you to complete the sentence. Do yourself a favor. Yeah, I'm going to go a bit of rock and roll with this one, Tim. Go on then. I thought long and hard about this. I'm going to say do yourself a favor and live 20% of your life according to your plans. And the rest of it, like you've only got one year left on this planet. And I say that because, in all honesty, it was 5% to begin with, but I've raked it up to 20%. I'm not the world's greatest of planners. I tend to live in the moment. But I think we need to always keep in mind, we're on this planet for a really, really short time. Let's make a little dent on the universe, but let's also enjoy our time on here. And I remember... John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're busy making all your plans. And when you look at it like that, it's like life gets in the way of your plans. We need to recognise that living life should be our primary reason for existence. Hmm. And the planning is our way of making sure it's a good life in the future. So, yeah, 20% plans, 80%, just live your life. And Mike Tyson also said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. And, you know, as we've all discovered over the last last 18 months or so, life, you know, has an annoying habit of punching yourself in the face. And I think being able to, planning's, planning's important. Planning's how you make sure you're not just drifting, but you've also got to be flexible enough to, to roll with the punch and, and allow your plans to bend and shift a little bit when life does throw something weird at you. Yeah. I've just always thought that the goal of goal of life is if you're fortunate enough to live to a very ripe old age and to know that your last breath is just, just about to happen, in those final moments, you'll look back on life and go, I made a bit of a difference and it was a damn good ride. And I think plans should enable that rather than get in the way of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I think there's the, for a while, I used to be kind of envious of people who'd got the life plan and they decided, you know, when they were at, at school or uni or whatever, like what they were going to do by the time they were 25, what they were going to do by the time they were 30 and, and so on and so forth. I used to be like, wow, imagine having that that level of of kind of discipline and, and self-awareness to be able to go, right, this is what I want and this is how I'm going to do it and be able to, because I never really... I never really had the thought that that was something that I should be thinking about at that age. And, and as I've got older, I'm sort of glad that I didn't have that degree of structure earlier on because I've been able to do some things that have just come up and I've been able to take advantage of opportunities that have come up for me. But also I kind of think I'm, I'm the sort of person where if I'd done that degree of planning and, choreographed my life in such a way that anything that would come along to get in the way of it would probably really really shook me you know I'd have probably really really struggled to kind of bounce out of that if I'd had 
plan a level of planning to that degree. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think if you come back to your first question and me saying changing jobs isn't a negative, mm-hmm. we have a habit of picking names for our children often before they're born, but certainly before their personality starts to rise. That's why I'm six foot eight. I'm 23 stone. I look like a WWE wrestler and my name's Kevin. Bless my mother, Iris Muriel. Similarly, why should a 16, 17, 18 year old know what they're going to do for a living? They barely know themselves. Mm. And imagine if we had a society where the expectation is you don't settle down into your proper job until you're in your early 30s at the earliest. Mm. Spend your 20s testing the waters and i've got this belief that everybody is really good at something mm-hmm. and it's a matter of chance to some extent whether they happen upon it or extend a kick to football what would his life look like now and i think for the majority of us we're only going to find that out by trying new things and even things that our initial instinct is oh i don't want to do that i'm not going to be very good at that i I got picked for the school basketball team at 13 because i was the tallest bloke in the year talent zero and i worked really hard at my basketball i started leaving home at seven o'clock in the morning to get to the gym at school as it opened stayed there until just before my bus pass ran out i become a school captain i played a very good level of basketball but not because i had that latent talent ready to burst out but because I worked hard at it why did I work hard at it I really enjoyed it and I really wanted to succeed and I think we need to give ourselves the opportunity to have a go at stuff accepting that some of it will be the wrong stuff and that's Mm -hmm. not a failure that's evolution the the whole it's interesting the dweck mindset you know fixed growth mindset concepts seem to be I don't know whether it's just that I reread the book recently and uh, and therefore I'm just seeing it everywhere <laughs> or whether actually there's something about the current situation of people kind of having gone through a fairly weird time and, and having lots of questions of identity and how much people's identities are wrapped up in their work or in things that they sort of granted. But certainly that idea of being of ability people identifying themselves with what they are good at and kind of structuring themselves a lot around, I'm good at this thing and I'm not good at this thing. It seems to be coming up a lot in conversations at the moment for, for me. And and that's exactly what you just described there, that whole idea that you might be talented at something, but also you can you can learn to get good at something and you can learn to get to a high standard at something by putting the... Yeah, equally, there's the opposite. You might be really good at something, but not enjoy it, in which case... Absolutely. I think yeah, it's more it, important in life to do what you enjoy than to be good at what you do. Mm-hmm. And, and skill and knowledge is changeable. Yeah. It's an interesting point of view to take as a parent as well. I was talking to someone about the, the concept of, of growth mindset and they and fixed mindset. And they explained it back to me as, you know, to sort of like show they got their, their head around it. And I thought they, they picked a brilliant example of the fact that when you're at school, when you're at primary school, there's always like the kid in the class who's brilliant. And how many of those kids who are brilliant at drawing ever went on to become artists? And part of that is probably or possibly because they were told they were good at drawing. Mm-hmm. 
so then sword have never really worked at it because it's a thing they're good at and so they don't need to practice it yeah. and it's uh and i think there's definitely that sense that when you if you do find something easy to start with if you get into that mindset that it's a thing you're good at actually then when you have to start working at it it can be, be quite well it's quite hard to go but it's been easy up to now why have i got to start working at it now yeah yeah i i remember I've always had a natural affinity to maths at school. Naturally good at it. Didn't put in a lot of effort. I think got a C or a B in my O level. And then as part of that apprenticeship, we had to do a national diploma, higher national diploma in electronic engineering. One of the subjects was mathematics. I thrived. I loved it. Top of the class. And then, then we got to the subject called J Notation. Now, I think maths is always a great example of usually you can see a specific moment where people go, that's it, out of my depth, stop there. <laughs> and for me, that was J notation. Right. And J notation, I remember the teacher standing at the front of the class, he said, J is the square root of minus one. My logical brain said, does not compute, because one squared is one, minus one squared is one. <laughs> so how can anything squared... B minus one. The answer is J. And at that point, I went, I'm checking out of maths now. Thank you. Whatever grade I've earned, I'm happy with that. But we've all got potential. And yeah, your kid drawing at class, if the teacher's saying, it's great, you're starting ahead of everybody else, see how much further you can go. And when you get to a point where either you're not going any further or you're risking falling out of love with it, then stop growing. But let's find how far you can grow first. I must tell the little dog that. Five foot eight. Just concentrate really hard. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to buy some shoes with some big heels in. So where can people find you, Kev? Uh, you can find us at a very outdated www.bdld.org.uk. Uh, social media is probably the best place to check in with me. So I'm on LinkedIn, Kevin Moore, FRSA, FIEP. They do stand for something. It's not just a really badly spelt surname. Or if you want to go onto Twitter, you'll find me at BDLD Kevin. Thank you very much. As much fun as I hoped it was going to be. It's really great to see you again. And uh, thanks for coming on Diesel Fever. Pleasure. Thanks for the invite, too. been listening to do yourself a favor the podcast about learning from experience and the things we do to make our lives easier brought to you by make work work better my name is tim sisme from make work work better our theme tune is by the titanics talk to you again soon why more jewelry um if you say so you might need a couple of takes but let's go with it Passively amid the noise and the haste, and remember what peace there may be in silence. As far as possible, without surrender, be on good terms with all persons. Speak your truth quietly and clearly, and listen to others, even to the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. 
Avoid loud and aggressive persons. They are vexatious to the spirit. If you compare yourself with others, you may become vain or bitter, but always there will be greater and lesser persons than yourself. Enjoy your achievements as well as your plans. Keep interested in your own career, however humble. It is a real possession in the changing fortunes of time. Exercise caution in your business affairs, for the world is full of trickery. But let this not blind you to what virtue there is. Many persons strive for high ideals, and everywhere life is full of heroism. Be yourself. Especially, do not feign affection. Neither be cynical about love, for in the face of all Arisian disenchantment, it is as perennial as the grass. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the feelings of youth. Nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness. Beyond a wholesome discipline, be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe, no less than the trees and the stars. You have a right to be here. And, whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Therefore, be at peace with God, whatever you conceive him to be. And whatever your labours and aspirations, in the noisy confusion of life, keep peace in your soul. With all its sham, drudgery and broken dreams, it is still a beautiful world. Be cheerful. Strive to be happy. Might need a couple of takes, Mike. Takes, Mike. Mike.